So what do we pay people? This has been the conversation for the last two and now third conversation. And I'm going to make a claim about comp that is probably uncontroversial, but is worth making, which is that getting smart about comp as at an organization level is about getting smart about aligning the incentives of people who are receiving that comp. And so what do we mean by aligning incentives? There's different components to comp, right? There's base salary, obviously. Some companies pay cash bonus, some don't. There's RSUs, right? That's another comp component, kind of tying people to the performance of the company. There's options, a different way of tying people to the company. 401k is a kind of comp, right? And then you just go down a rabbit hole, right? Should we have a new education stipend? Should we do travel benefits? Maybe having a nice office, that's like comp, right? Free meals, is that a thing? Foosball table? Like it, you start to go down this rabbit hole and before you know it, you're like, I don't even know all in what the comp is. From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne de Bruin and you're in the CTO studio. Seven CTOs is a global collective of CTOs helping each other become world-class leaders through our peer groups that meet once a month, as well as one-on-one coaching and mentorship. We carefully assemble our forums with seven like-minded people who are at similar and adjacent stages with their companies. They help each other solve challenges unique to technical leadership roles. Each forum gets assigned an executive coach who leads conversations of emotional support and growth as well as holds space for difficult conversations we need to have sometimes. Check out 7CTOs.com and apply today. Mention CTO Studio and get a free strategy session with yours truly. And I truly look forward to hearing from you. I'm going to do three worked examples here of different kinds of companies, just to highlight some of these trade-offs and, and thoughts about it, okay? I want to introduce three principles that I think are super important in thinking about comp. One is, like we said, we want to incentivize people correctly. Probably if we're a very small company, we want a, more of our comp to be tied to the performance of the business. If we're a 100,000 person organization, maybe that doesn't make quite as much sense. Sort of trade-offs in terms of organization size and organization structure and roles, to get incentives. The principle of not worse off, I think is really important for small companies. The idea is if you want to hire somebody, you don't want to make them worse off than all of their other alternatives. Because otherwise there's just going to be this natural tension that they're going to want to leave to get a better deal somewhere else. So no matter what comp structure you come up with, the person who accepts that comp structure can't be worse off taking your deal versus somebody else. Maybe you can fool them for a while, but it's not a stable equilibrium, right? So let's not do that. And the last principle, obviously, is consistency. That means consistency across the org. Obviously, we don't want two people doing the same job getting different comp. That also factors into the structure thing. You could pay two people kind of different base, but maybe you make that up with equity. There's lots of variations here. So we want consistency because that's the idea. And so for these worked examples, I'm going to make a, a stylized example. We're talking about hiring a staff level and they are kind of fang level quality, whatever the hell that means. Obviously, we've talked about how you can't order engineers on a simple line and say A is better than B, but whatever, somebody who could otherwise get a job at a fang type company and that there's a business justification for hiring this person. Okay, so these are the baseline assumptions. So what does this look like? I'm going to tell you what a Google staff engineer makes because that is known information. Okay, a Google staff engineer makes 232 base, 63 bonus, and RSUs at 233K a year. Okay, 
So taken all together in an aggregate of what their comp is for five years, it's $2.64 million. Okay, so this is the benchmark when we talk about no worse off. If we want to hire this person, we don't want them to think they're getting a bum deal by not going to Google. What is a company that, that we could possibly think about? Let's start with pre-seed founder, right? As like a concrete example of somebody. You're maybe the technical co-founder of a company with maybe a non-technical co-founder. We want to make sure that whatever decisions we make financially as founders or as finding our non-technical co-founder, we're not worse off than going to Google. And so we need to make some assumptions about the business, right? So here are some assumptions we might want to make that, that we think we're going to grow to 10 million ARR in five years. There's going to be maybe like a dilution event, like a pre-seed funding or like a seed stage funding or something that's going to dilute the value of the company a little, or the value of our shares a little bit. 10x valuation multiplier, that's pretty, pretty conservative for a SaaS company. So if we're doing 10, 10 million ARR in five years and we have a 10x multiplier and we have uh, one dilution, then that kind of, in terms of the shares we have today, that's like a $70 million business value, right? So let's say that the chances of this thing succeeded is $7 million. It is 10%. So that gives us an expected value of $7 million of the value of the company. Okay, I worked out the numbers. If we pay this person, this co-founder pays themselves $100,000 and they own 31% of the company vested in five years, then we can talk about the numbers. I can show you the spreadsheet. This works out to being no worse off than that Google deal because you're going to get 31% of this company, then an expectation is going to be worth $7 million plus your, your $500,000 of base over the five years, that works out to the same number. So that's an example. That's a worked example of a reasonable comp for a pre-seed founder that is no worse off than going to get a job at Google. So that's at, like at a very early stage, right? This is a pre-seed founder. Okay, so now let's look at something slightly bigger. We've got a Series A company. And again, we need to make some assumptions. Let's say that they grow to 100 million ARR in five years. They do two dilutions, maybe like a series B and a series C over the next five years. 8X valuation multiplier, again, fairly conservative. Now the probability of success is probably a little bit higher, right? We're getting past that early graveyard of a lot of startups. Again, all we're doing is calculating the business value, like the 100 million times the 8X multiplier times the dilution times the probability of success to get like, a, like an expected business value. And then work out how much stock do we need to give this person, again, in order for them not to be worse off in five years than they are now. And finally, and, and look, it's the same calculation every time. I'm just showing you the examples because it gives you an idea on like salaries and stock, which is a big question mark. Oh, I got to hire a director of engineering. How much stock do I have to give them? This is trying to answer that question. So that's a Series A company. And so let's go a little bit bigger. Maybe a Series D, grow to 1 billion ARR in five years. We want to do an IPO, 8X valuation multiplier, probability of success, probably pretty high right now, right? This is like a real going business. The chances of them going bust, probably relatively small. So now your comp is starting to look a lot more like the Google comp in kind of the shape of it, right? You're now starting to pay cash bonuses because you're actually making money. But keeping cash in order to grow the business isn't as big a deal when you're a larger company. So the base is maybe a hair lower. The bonus is a hair lower. The stock is a hair lower, but we have some expectation of growth or stock going up because we're going to have this IPO, this liquidity event that usually gives you a bit of a pop. We got some lockup associated with the IPO. Again, this person 
using this calculation is no worse off than going to Google. And I think this is the, the key principle in thinking about these worked examples, right? What is their next best option and how can I at least match that? So that you're not just relying on the cultural stuff to keeping them in your company, but you're actually making it financially worth it for them to stay. Your edge as a small company is your, your equity. So just use it. Okay, there's a very common failure mode, which is being penny wise and pound foolish. I like, what is the least equity that I can get away with giving my employees in my series A company? That's the wrong way to think about it. It just is. You need to make sure that the number you give people makes sense for their other options. And you need to be very upfront about this. You're making a bet on the company, so should they, right? And you need to be very upfront in, in the hiring process and every piece of it. If you do not believe in the growth of this company, you should not take this job. Okay, that's super, super critical when you're hiring somebody in a small company, right? Like you don't want people, you don't want to have to convince them that it's going to do great. And for them to take the job saying, I'm not 100% convinced, right? That is an unstable equilibrium. They're going to leave. And finally, and this is the thing that I have to say, even though it pains me to say it, if you still can't compete, you need to reevaluate. If you can't manage to pay these people what it makes sense to pay them so that they don't go somewhere else, then you need to figure something else out. You need to figure out whether this is like legitimately a business you want to be in, or you need to figure out whether you need that level of talent, as we talked about in the last conversation, right? Lots of ways to square the circle. The default is to say, oh, I need a FANG engineer or FANG quality engineer and everything's going to be great. Maybe you don't, especially if you can't pay. I'd like to throw it out to, to some conversation about, does this model make sense to people? Like what, how do other people, how do you think about this? Not working for Google is worth a huge bonus. Like that's, there's cash compensation for not having to work for Google is my opinion. But the value of working at somewhere where your work is valued and actually your contribution is valued by the company and, and what you're doing is actually not just going to get thrown away a couple of years down the road. I think that to me seems like that's, there's a lot of people out there mm -hmm. would see that as a value. I agree, Chris, but I'm going to challenge you a little bit because your perception as I know your situation, right? You're the founder of your company, right? So you're going to like really viscerally feel that. And maybe your first employee is also going to really viscerally feel that. But I'm going to tell you, by the time you get to your 15th employee, they're just not going to feel the same way you do. But you're still a very small company. And so the thing I see a lot is the disconnect between the founder of the company and how much they feel that, that thing that you're saying, Chris, and the 20th employee. Fine, it's not the 1,000th employee, but even the 20th employee, you have to start thinking about that. Yeah, but I think to challenge that a little bit, you still won't necessarily be looking for fine talent on your 50th employee, right? You want that for your early entrance, but that's not going to be where you're at the whole time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was just, I think this is a really helpful model. Makes a lot of sense to me. Issue we've run up against working with non-Silicon Valley type investors is they don't have that same sort of mindset around leveraging stock for employee compensation. And so they want to carve out these very small equity pools for early stage employees, five, 10%. And if we're going to hire 20 people, we can't necessarily carve out 2% for each of those folks if we only have 8% to work with or whatever. Mm -hmm. So any thoughts on how, <laughs> how you pitch this? I'm going to channel my inner Sam Altman and I, I can link to to a, a post that Sam Altman made. So Sam Altman is, uh, is the Y Combinator guy and Sam Altman would say, you've got the wrong investors. It's that simple. Yeah, it's a question I ask quite a bit to myself. But That's a great article, Augustine. Yeah, so just to 
just to stretch that out, how big should your equity pool be? So Sam's uh, strategy is very straightforward. It's your equity pool should be as big as it needs to be to hire as many FANG level quality engineers you need and give them the comp that will make them no worse off for working for you. That makes sense. So the extra, that's the exercise. And it is interesting. I'd love to ask the group, like, why do you think folks are so stingy on equity? Because I, I see this all the time where the, those founders hold on to equity with, uh, and don't want to let go. And it's probably the biggest mistake I see. I've, just my personal anecdotal experience being plugged into the Birmingham, Alabama scene as there's a couple larger successful companies that have been started by founders with pretty flush pockets to begin with, where they can leverage the money that they already have to just go straight into paying higher salaries. And so that's just that other folks in the community adopt that same mindset of just pay folks the money and save the equity for yourself. And so it's just right. There's that sort of, I'm the owner, you're the player mindset. I'll write you a check. Yeah. But I, I maintain, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's a fail. But it's interesting to, to dig into why it's a fail, because fine, if the job that you're hiring for is very well-defined and you know what it is, then yeah, maybe that can work. Just pay the consultant or, or pay the hired gun to just do the job for you. But as we know, in these startups, it's not about that. It's about all those other little things that make the difference. And so that's the principle of why equity matters. And it's so important part of the comp. Yeah, no, I was just curious. So there's also like working conditions. Like mob program is a, a really fantastic example is you just can't go to Google and expect a mob program, right? Or into any fang company. And so you have these non-tangible things that kind of give you the advantage. And I don't know how to price those. Because obviously like I can make an equivalent offer by lowering the cash and offering a working style that they can't get another company. And I just don't know, like how do you even like reason about that? Yeah. So one of the things that I've seen be very effective is to be very upfront in your job descriptions and all the messaging upfront about what the environment is. I know Brian does a really good job of this, actually, about what the environment is that people are coming into in this company and also putting comp on that job description, like a comp range. And hey, like this is what you're getting to my program. You're getting to do these things that we think are valuable, that we hope you think are valuable. And this is what we're looking at. And so people can choose to opt in because they see both at the same time. Yeah, it's 25% less than Google, but I get to do a thing that I enjoy doing. And so that seems to be a good way to do it. Actually, LinkedIn has some interesting stats, of course, because LinkedIn's selling products. But LinkedIn has actually some interesting stats on the when someone's considering you as an employer, Part of what they're going to do, almost everybody does, is they're going to look at your activity on LinkedIn to try to get a feel for your work environment. So like a no-brainer action, like Augustine is saying, is you have to have sort of a presence on LinkedIn, a brand, if you will, not a brand to sell your product, but a brand for your potential employees. That means you have engineers that do videos on LinkedIn that talk about what it's like to work there. You take, you produce little videos of snippets of hackathons you've done, whatever it is so that it's very visceral for the potential candidate. Yeah, go check out Wayne Haber. He does, like, the stuff he does on LinkedIn is really good, I think. He does a really good job. Seven CTOs member, I got to plug. Chris, you had a thought? Yeah, so um, not speaking for myself, but if you're basically saying if you have a company and your particular work environment or the work that you're doing isn't such to drive people there to, maybe it's not the most exciting work, that you need to, to comp, in a way, overcompensate them for that 
to to get the kind if you need the kind of talent. And I so I I guess like your business has to be a fairly big business that can afford to pay top dollar in that situation then. Or possibly not. If the work isn't that exciting or interesting or novel or breaking new ground, you probably shouldn't be doing it as part of a core piece of your company. Like you should be, you should probably be putting that in an agency or somebody who is going to do it better, more cheaply, more efficiently, because they do this day in and day out than making it some one-off inside your small company. I have a case with it where we had like a, we wanted to retain one of our data guys that he has a bunch of friends working in Amazon. He always compares himself to that, to those guys. And they were making more money than, but by a lot. So we talked to them. Uh, and one of the things that I would add to that to know worse off is hours worked per week. Amazon guys were like working on the weekends, 60 hours a week, and they didn't have a lot of like free time to hang out. So that's one thing that we made them realize. And, oh, yeah, I have a lot more flexibility. Uh, then we're fully remote. So he doesn't have to go to the office or anything. That's a huge value. And the other thing is like, what else do you want to do? Is like, I don't want to be talking to publishers. I don't want to be like dealing with these like human things. So, okay, cool. Just do this and work with, we'll hire more intelligent, hire more. And he stayed and he's super happy right now. So uh, we matched the compensation that at least a little bit that what Amazon would get, he would get in Amazon. And, and that he, he just did what he wanted. And then considering the hours work too, I think hours work and lifestyle is, uh, is for sure. Part of it. Without question, especially now, look, salaries are so high that, I mean, who wants to work 60 hours a week for 400 grand when you could work 40 hours a week for 200 and 200 grand. Yeah, I think y'all pretty much covered it. But I, I just to comment on what Phil was saying, that's something we've seen a lot of success with is getting our employees to be advocates for the company culture, whether that's through referrals or during the interview process, bringing in a group interview session where all of our folks are happy to talk up the work-life balance, remote working, the level of collaboration that we have. And I think that gets a lot of folks excited, even if overall compensation is going to be less dollars wise than what they could get from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Paul, you had a thought? Yeah. Just one quick thing I wanted to add that you maybe could have mentioned, Augustine, you know, a lot of fails are actually in the last mile of that comp delivery. For example, worked with one team who told their employee, this is your base and we're going to give you 1.84% equity. And they left it to the potential candidate to do the math. What the hell is 1.84%? And they're losing candidates because what the person really wants to know is how much money am I going to have? So what you almost want to think of it is like some folks do something akin to like retirement calculators or you put in some assumptions and then it models some scenarios and says, look, like just be a little bit more upfront and transparent. Under these assumptions, we could be worth this. This is what the dollar amount is to you. Don't assume that employees actually understand options. It's actually amazing just how little understanding there is of equity among just, especially if you're just out of school or something, it's not understood. Don't assume that it is. I, I bump on that fact that they don't know equity. And even if you come from a startup background, like they don't know like what, how big is the pot? What's the dilution look like? What are you trying to raise? We, one of the tactics I've taken is I call it choose your own adventure. So like for every single hire that I do, I'll give them three options, like low cash, high equity, like mid and mid, and then high cash or high equity, low cash. So you can literally choose, but when it's not negotiable at that point, I kind of just start out with, Hey, like we have a range of like where we're going to come and that you'll land somewhere in there and then have that kind of dance or whatever. But ultimately I give them three options and I don't like negotiate past that. But what I do with those options is say, all right, we are like right now, like we are we have X amount of air. Our last fundraise put us at this valuation. Our current stock option price is this amount. 
And so, and we traditionally have a history of two to three Xing year over year. So let's take the conservative one and I'll do two X year over year over four years. And then I'll amortize it. And then I'll add that into the cash pump and say, if we raise, and I'll also include dilution. And so if we raise and at this rate with this ARR, here's your your cash comp, but here's like what your equity could be from a conservative and aggressive amount. And typically that's how I convince a lot of people is that. And then also the impact our company is making on humanity. Like, I think those are the two biggest things that actually lead to converting people and taking less than, because like all of our engineers take less than Google. If we're like a hundred billion dollar company, they're in great shape. But at the end of the day, like a lot of people that come to our company for like the impact that we're making as an organization on humanity. And then can I have not livable wage, but like more than livable wage. And then with, with a pretty solid upside and like that converts a lot, but the, how I hook them in with the equity choice and surprisingly, a lot of them choose the like lower cash comp, higher equity one because of that is like, yeah. they start to see like the risk and they believe in what we're doing. Like we have a passionate driven company and that I, I, I tend to get people who are, we don't give bonuses, right? Like I don't give incremental raises. That's a, it's, it's a milestone based thing. If we hit a fundraise, I give a blanket like comp raise across, like bracket across everybody. And that's kind of like how I take the approach. I communicate that from the ground. And I think that's been working out pretty well so far. But I guess if you have anyone tried that and it failed miserably, so I can stop. There's two things I want to say about that. One is the thing you're doing there is an old sales tactic, which is give people gates that they opt themselves into things so that by the end of it, they've gone through all these gates and you're like, yeah, I've opted into the low salary, high equity like model because that has to be like, I have to be consistent with my choices up until this point. And so that's actually a really good retention tool. There's a risk and I'm sure you've thought about it, which is if you do actually skyrocket, then you're going to have a big disparity because two people doing the same job, one of them is going to be able to buy the house in La Jolla and the other one's not. And the reason is because that other person took more cash because they had, they were, they had a family. And so you're going to get this tension if you're successful. And people will feel aggrieved one or the other. The person who got the, the, the La Jolla thing would be like, I can go, I can, I'm good now. And the other person's that person's got the La Jolla house. I got to go and get my piece. So there's a tension that you're setting up. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to do, but it's just a natural tension that, that, that is going to happen. Yeah. It comes down to risk reward. Like minor, you can't get an outcome if you don't put up risk. And although the thing I would say that's brilliant, that that's absolutely brilliant about what you're doing, Sam is the transparency. You could, for example, choose to not offer the choose your own adventure, but still have that complete transparency. This is how, like you said, like these are the different scenarios we're going through. This is what your, your total comp could be worth in five years. I think that's brilliant, whether or not you offer the, the choose your own adventure option. Yeah. They, they just don't understand it. So you got to- don't understand it. it. Exactly. Yeah. Have you uh, seen any correlation? Enjoy. Sorry, it's on Sam's uh, comment. Have you seen any correlation between people that choose long-term benefits and people staying there or people choosing more money initially and then leaving earlier? No, only because we have no churn. I like, I, I, it's, it's a oh. weird and we're to the point where I'm like, I'm waiting for someone to leave and no one's left yet and I'm rolling up on seven years. So yeah, I, personally, I think it's just because like our, I, I think one of the biggest retention things is our culture is awesome, like our culture, but also like our just impact on humanity, like company growth is like, super hardcore and all that sort of thing. And everyone wants to say no one's left yet. So that's wild. Like not at will. Like it's doable. It's hard. But I love that Sam is like the existence proof. This is a doable thing. It's not easy, but it, it can be done. Yeah. So love your presentation and the model there, Augustine, about having like that. You're comparing all these different data points and evaluating across the way. And I do love Sam's transparency about this choosing an adventure as well. Just out of curiosity, you have this position, well, at least the example you gave is you're comparing against the fang. You're comparing against the top of the top. So do you 
advocate or anybody here, like the concept of those bands, do you, do you evaluate people on these, on bands, basically like compensation bands? And when you're chatting with somebody, are you using that as a tactic to say you, you are a fang level engineer, but you don't hit these things. Therefore you're in this category now and you can bump down a little bit. So do, do you use this as a technique to negotiate? I think there's a debate around that, but certainly you want to hire people who know what they're worth at some level, right? If you're hiring people who don't know what they're worth, again, that's an unstable equilibrium. Like something's going to happen that's going to break that, that, that spell, right? One way or the other. And so look, be, again, I think what Paul said, being very upfront, transparent, this is what we think. Tell us, what do you think is your comp? Like you can always just say, what's your other option? If you don't come to us, what is your other option? Like Netflix, I think Paul mentioned this two weeks ago, Netflix famously tells people to go interview elsewhere and talk to people because Netflix gets the information. They just f- learn what people are worth and it's good for them. They're trying to actively eliminate that, that lack of knowledge. So that's my perception on it anyway. Steve, Steven, other Steven? Yeah, yeah. So I guess I wanted to give a little perspective on our, our situation because we we've been around for... The company's been around for about 15 years. It's much more of a slow growth model. We're still VC funded. So, but what we have found with it is that it has made the intangibles part of this discussion much more important for us because the last seed round we did was like in 2013, but we don't have a big options pool to draw from. We don't have the, our budget is pretty stable and we don't have the ability to pay FANG level prices for anyone. So we really have to sell and try to quantify the culture and the purpose and all of that. And that's just absolutely critical to us, not just for recruiting, but even more so for retention. We lost one of our best developers a few months ago that left for twice as, and and there's just no way to compete with that. So you have to, you can't compete with that monetarily in our situation. So we have to make sure that we just on a daily basis, emphasize culture and purpose and all of those sorts of things. So I just wanted Mm -hmm. to get that perspective. First question, I guess, is at what point in time in the the hiring process do you you reveal this stuff. You want to get people on board if you're an early stage startup and you're not, and your compensation level isn't no worse than Google, or you have the, you've calculated as being no worse than Google, but are you going to be able to attract people? Are people experiencing getting the candidates that you want into the pipeline? Or is there people who just aren't even getting in your pipeline? You're not even seeing resumes because the assumption is you're too small and that another job out there is going to pay a lot more. It, Chris, it's not a size thing. Like people who, companies, we work with tons of them. Companies that have trouble with the top of their pipeline, with uh, the top of their funnel, it's not a problem with how much they're paying or whether they're transparent about it. It's 100% just differentiating themselves, not 100%, but a lot of it is just differentiating themselves from all of the other thousand startups that look to a candidate exactly identical. And so what Paul was saying about an outreach, about having a brand for the purposes of recruiting, the, the small companies that do this well, crush the top of the funnel hiring stuff. They get like literally orders of magnitude more candidates than the ones that don't, right? And so that's the biggest knob you can pull in terms of the top of the funnel. And as we said, I think transparency about comp as early as possible in the process, you just went to that. That's just a good thing. Yeah. And then my other one is, I guess, coming back to looking for, there's not worse than Google, but better than Google. And I think that is what you're talking about. There's other value beyond just compensation that can make you stand out. Exactly. So if you can hit that sweet spot of you're at least not going to be losing money by taking this job and you get all these other benefits, then like Sam said, like people are just going to stay forever. So in a smaller company, 
you, let's say you have five engineers, there's an intrinsic knowledge that you're not going to easily replace. If that person leaves you, it's not going out and, hey, there's an eight-week pipeline to hire a new engineer. Mm -hmm. There's a six-month backlog that just occurred because you now need to get that engineer up to speed. You need to educate them on your product. Google doesn't need to do that. That They could easily just slide another person in there and then replace them. So there's not just this this compensation package. There's to me, where in the where in your calculation do you say, hey, your value is not just in this number, which you could go get, but your value to me as the owner of the company or as the the CTO of the company bringing you in says, hey, you're invaluable to us because if you died tomorrow, we don't have a business. So I'm glad that I got six million dollars in investment money, but if you die. That $6 million is worth nothing to me because, and I think when we go through those startup phases, there's always going to be that. You've got those three or four core people that you don't want to lose. So where in your calculations, would you say that you've accounted for that part of the Right. Yeah, no, and I think that, so to Chris's point, the principle we were talking about in the calculation is no worse than. Sounds like you're making an argument for definitely better than their alternative because it's an existential problem for your company if, if you lose them. And so getting back to Chris's point, Certainly people feel like a, a big part of what people love about their jobs is that feeling of being valued and engaged in an important element. And so getting back to Chris's and Steve's point, that's another place where that non-monetary value for people in their job comes into play. So I, maybe I would argue like no worse than, and also these other benefits, including the fact that you're existentially important to this company. That's a pretty cool feeling to have as an employee, right? In yeah, fact, if, and if you will have that feeling too much sometimes, like I'm indispensable and it turns out you're not, but at least the people tend towards that in that direction. Yes. And there's another sort of dollar and cents answer to your question, Eric. What you're pointing out is actually the biggest argument for the way you express somebody's long-term value is by saying, I'm going to give you a big pile of shares if you just stay with me. If you're paying him in cash, you're that's like a mercenary. You, you're paid, you can just go. So really, one way to think about that is as a percentage of your total comp, if you're indispensable, that percentage of equity should be much higher. And if you look at the, the Google table, that kind of bears out in terms of the, the percentage of base versus equity, right? So just give them more equity is the maybe a short answer. And all the soft things we're talking about as well, making people feel empowered and part of the team. Yeah, I think. Paul pretty much hit the, the nail on the head with what I was going to say. We had actually ran into this situation over the past year. Employee leaving wasn't really due to compensation, but just some of the effects of COVID and whatnot. But in order to get that employee back and re-engage with that knowledge set that he had, it cost us a pretty pity. We didn't have that equity pool to draw from. We definitely were able to give him some more of that, but we had to make up quite a bit on the cash side and readjust budgets and whatnot yeah. to fit in with it. So. Definitely plus one to if you can structure the equity so that they're bought in from that perspective, could definitely save you some money in the short term. Uh, yeah. for actual cash. So, uh, I want to get to a question Beth had about kind of bonus programs. I think there's some broad principles here that we can talk. And I come from engineering, then come from another industry where where cash bonuses were everything, right? Where there was zero equity. And in fact, something like 80% of your comp was somebody sitting you in a room in December and telling you how much you made that year. And so it's a very different model to the way software companies work. And the thing about cash bonuses, there's a couple of things. One is a very broad principle is more of your comp should be variable 
the more that you are at the sharp end or the high value end of the business. And that can be different for different companies, right? So famously, life insurance, like variable comp for the salesman is everything, right? Like you eat what you kill as an insurance salesman because that's the sharp end of the business. That's where the differential value of the business is made. And so you want variable comp, like performance-based there, right? In a trading company like I was at, same kind of thing. The traders were the sharp end of the stick. And so it was almost all variable comp for traders. It was less for developers and even less for office admin stuff. But as a general principle, we should think of the variability of your comp as a function of what is the differential value to the business? And some roles just have more differential value than others, right? I don't know, like the, the database architect at Airtable, that's probably a pretty important role, right? That should probably be highly variable comp. And so that's the variability side of it. And then it's the other side, which I think we've addressed a little bit is the cat on bonus cash versus stock. Again, it's where is your company in the life cycle? What growth prospects? What kinds of loyalties do you want to incentivize, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know, Beth, does that kind of, uh, kind of address that question? Yes. Yeah. I think there's, there are both sides of it. And so people were just curious if there's a, a right and a wrong to this or if there's just the general one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. I, I've seen a lot of confusion on this. So just to add a couple of things. One thing that companies screw up is they're not clear eyed about whether their bonus is actually profit sharing or whether it's performance based. So for example, I worked at Qualcomm a long time. Qualcomm called it a bonus but it was actually profit sharing. So I had years where I worked my butt off and the bonus I got was tiny. And then there were other years where I felt like I didn't really work that hard. And I got this huge bonus. And for a long time, I was confused. Why am I getting these huge? And then I realized it's really a function of the company's profits, but they called it a performance bonus for you personally. So be clear-eyed about that. I think if you're going to do what I just described, which is give a fraction of the company profits, don't call it a bonus. Call it profit sharing because that's what it is. If you want to reward like people that go above and beyond, then what you should really be doing is talking about a fixed pool of cash year over year so that the employee feels it when they outperform, you want them to see more money. So just be consistent on that point or, or people will just be confused. Yeah, yeah I, I do, we haven't talked about it much today, but paid time off seems like an area where you can really, I know the base camp guys talked about, they initially had unlimited PTO and what they found is employees were taking less time off when they had that because they felt. And so they flipped that and they did mandatory paid time off. But they added in this extra bonus of where they actually pay you to take time off. So they actually pay like every couple of years for you to go leave your home city and go somewhere and be away for, you know, three weeks. And it seems like that's not a super expensive thing because you're already paying them for that. It's just a matter of planning for yeah. them not working. But it, it I know, especially in tech, burnout is huge. And it seems like that's a way that you offer additional compensation. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in finance, there's mandatory two weeks off. And that's like purely a rogue trader prevention mechanism where you literally have to leave for two weeks under the assumption that if you did some bad stuff, it'll get revealed when somebody takes over your job for two weeks. But the point here, the broader point, I think, is it's a cultural decision you, you make in your company right? Some companies are like big on work-life balance. Others are less so, right? That's just a decision you make as a company. And I think the number one thing that, the, that we see is just being consistent, like being consistent with your culture, whatever it is more important than the specifics on what you decide to do. Brian, you had a thought? Yeah. Hey guys, great uh, conversation. Thank you. So I work for a construction company, electrical contractor, renewable energy. Just a couple of thoughts. Uh, 
a little bit random of what we've been talking about, but with as we've been hiring new people, we see that they're coming in at higher rates potentially in the market than we have our existing people. So we've been really proactive of trying to make sure we're taking care of our existing team members. And you may have already covered that earlier. I came out late, but I think that's something that we should really be mindful of. We've got the dynamics of inflation and now our merit increases we're offering aren't as valuable, you know, as they were previously, if we're in a higher inflationary uh, market, which we are, I think that's something we also will be hearing about with this round of uh, performance reviews and we do, you know, market adjustments and merit increases at our company. So it's just something that's a dynamic out there. Uh, some concerns I have with the bigger players coming to town, the Apples and Amazons coming to San Diego that could pull resources that we have and just want to be really cognizant of that. And that's where I do agree with all this conversation around the purpose and why the whole package and the culture, all those things become even more important. On the uh, the variable comp, I think that's really good. We do, a, I think, an effective job of having our uh, annual bonus be uh, part how the company is performing financially. And there's ranges. If we hit certain levels of you know, profitability, then we enjoy certain percentages of that each year, as well as our uh, individual key performance indicator achievement. So there's a, a personal control there as well as the broader company. And that seems to work really well for people. And really excited this year is our first year, last late last year, we became a, an ESOP, an employee-owned company. And so that really is telling now this long-term story of building uh, value for more of a long-term annuity uh, retirement vehicle. Mm -hmm. And you bring that into the hiring conversation, we're finding that's really helping us with attracting and uh, retaining people with the launch of becoming ESOP. Just a couple of things going on in our company as a construction company that are working. That's great. And challenges. Yeah. yeah. And look, and I think what Brian, the broader point that Brian's pointing out is let's be creative about this. Let's think about what makes sense for our companies. Every company is different. Let's make, let's think hard about this. Let's not just import cargo cult some approach that some other company decided to, to do and assume that it'll work. Right. So I, I wanted to bring something up in, in terms of pitfalls around variable comp that I, I actually, the place where I'm at right now actually does a pretty good job of it, but you go to a lot of bigger organizations. When you get into the business of setting goals, like personal goals around variable comp, if you're doing that for something like a sales rep or business development person, that's a lot easier to do, right? For someone like a software engineer, setting a personal goals and tying that to comp is, is always pro problematic. And, and what we always found was at the end of the year, when we were figuring out the, the, the bonus amounts, Nobody remembered what any of the goals were and how anybody performed the goals. It was how they performed versus each other. And so it turned into a very personally competitive environment and it pitted people against each other. And it did the exact opposite of what you wanted the bonus program to do. I only use that. I would just advise you only use that kind of incentive in, in the roles that it really makes sense for. Yeah, exactly. That's, and your point is so well taken and it just comes back to what behaviors are you incentivizing with your comp? And one of the things we like to see a lot actually is for discretionary comp to be hierarchically pushed down. So CTO says, okay, this is the bonus pool that I've received if we're doing bonuses. And then so each of their say VPs gets, the CTO decides how much of that each of their VPs gets individually and then their teams. And then the VP decides within their teams which directors get what down to the team level. And yeah, these things, you can do these hierarchically in a way that incentivize team-based behaviors. Augustine, I'll, I'll chime in real quickly on a couple of notes that have come up here. I think to Sam's point on transparency, I love that. I think it's not just transparency, but simplicity. 
just come up to everyone. It's amazing. Even Brian and Aesop, what people don't understand about it. So being transparent upfront, if they feel like you're wheeling and dealing them in that moment, then you're not exemplifying what you're you're trying to. The other one is is the investment. If they feel like you are making an investment in, I see for a lot of you, they feel vested in the outcome and in helping you reach your goal. So I love for all of these that have come up, even for Brian, if you work for a company that is not these small startups like Sam, your wins, your whole team is experiencing them, even the little ones. So you get a lot of that in the startup atmosphere. And then you have other companies where something like an ESOP, how do you feel, make employees feel vested when you don't have all of those great kind of leaps and bounds? So I think that's, I'm open to feedback on that, but that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, definitely. Any more thoughts, questions? I have a question. Yeah, so we touched on it a little bit, but I don't necessarily come away with like an explicit answer, which was how do you split up like, there's company goals, there's like team goals, and there's individual goals, right? And so I was recently in a conversation with someone else about like, how do you split up, like, how do you approach the, the bonus structure, like from those three lenses? Do you split them out in all three, like literally? Or do you highlight one versus the other? Because like this year, we hustled on the engineering side and product side and threw out like tons of stuff. We missed our revenue goal as an organization, like by a hair. And so like that, in reality, we're like, all right, we're not rolling out bonuses. And some ran to share like, what the heck is that about? And I'm like, and we worked our butts off. And so obviously like, I, you know, I was able to mitigate it because I'm like, look, like, here's how we organize the thing. This is very incremental. Who cares about a thousand dollars when we're like, I'm trying to give you like a 20K bonus in our next round, like a, and, and pure like salary. Let's not focus on this. Keep hustling. Hmm. So I was able to like kind of mitigate around that. But I do think that that will be a m- more and more of a problem. And like, I wish there was a kind of a better situation for that. So I'm like curious, like how is everyone else handling that? Those three layers. Well, so before we get to the three layers, and I'd love to get everybody else's thoughts, it sounds like there's some kind of discontinuity where if you reach 1 million, then you get a bonus. And if you get to 999,999, you don't. I think discontinuities like that are dangerous. And so I would say to the extent that you have, those are probably things you want to think about and and maybe get rid of. Yeah. Anybody else? How how do you guys think about these team versus individual? This is a good example of what I was talking about. We met all of our individual and team goals and we got nothing. Right. So that, that's the danger of it. If I have a goal that I want to set for somebody, that's a leadership, that's a leadership topic, not necessarily a financial compensation. Topic. Yeah. And, and I think it's, there's a great example of how it's, it's a little bit dangerous to conflate those two, two categories. That makes yeah. Sense. And I would just uh, add what we do for that is uh, having that range of financial performance or target to get a hundred percent financial portion of your bonus is a million, let's say, in that operating income. But if we your minimum entry point's going to be if we hit 750,000, at least you'll get you know, 25% of the bonus and give a chance actually to make more than 100% if we go at 1.25 you know, or something like that. So there's a, a whole range of, of points and that seems to work really well. And then as far as uh, team goals and individual goals, I think it's, I mean, anything to get done is really going to be more team oriented versus just, I did this one thing or got the certification. I think the bonus really comes on that performance of a team or an individual is really about the team getting things done. And that's where the KPIs come in. And for our IT departments, 50-50, 50% of your bonus is based on the financial and 50% on the your personal KPIs. But all the personal KPIs require people working as teams to get those done. So we don't split those out into three tiers. We just have two, uh, your KPI and your financial. Yeah. Other parts in the company, it's tailored a little bit differently. Maybe sales has a slightly a different ratio. Ours is 50-50. Maybe theirs are 
75% on their, or more tailored to their divisional work versus ours is company-wide because we're affecting the company. So it's variable, but that's how we... Yeah, and it's agree with that. And it, this is one reason why it's so important when you're designing a bonus program is think through all these scenarios. Think through what it would be like if the teams make all of their, software teams make all of their personal goals and sales team falls short and the company doesn't make revenue goals. What are we going to do? Have an answer for that before you, before you implement the program. Oh, yeah, I thought... Yeah, I think what Sam is mentioning is why I actually don't like variable-based pay. And I think it's, it goes like this. Unless it's very obvious and transparent to the employee what the bonus formula is, i.e. like a commission, like you were talking about Augustine in a sales, all of the finagling you're going to do and all these fancy models will be completely lost on the employee. Because you, you have the sophisticated formula that the employee doesn't see. And at the end, they get a bonus of, let's say, 11000 they're going to look at that and be like, okay, is that good? I don't know. What could it have been? Maybe it was, could have been you know, like 14,000 because it's not transparent to them. I've been in lots of management meetings where managers will argue for hours about how to distribute a bonus, but because it's opaque to the employee, the, the effect is lost. I, I think it's better to keep it simple in that scenario, unless it's going to be like a straight up commission kind of structure. But Paul, isn't that just to push on that a bit? I agree. Why can't variable comp be clear? Right? You can't. If, That's what I'm saying. We hit, and not even a commission, just if we hit this percentage of net operating income, or here's the range, and it is what it is. Yes. And everyone knows going into it's super clear. It's not commission based, it's performance. Going in and coming out, what that is, there's no gamesmanship, no fancy formulas that come out there. Is that? Yeah. GitLab famously does yeah. it. Like you can go to their website. They... I see you were going through this year, and were you communicating with your employees? Do they know how close you were to it or how far you were from it? Were there. How was that flow of communication? I think the, the projection showed us on target and it was like, like I said, we missed it by a hair. And I think the consensus from like our other founders was if we don't hit our goals, we're, no one should win in that sense. And is there stuff that we could have done to like crank things out on the engineering side? I would say marginally. I'm sure there's retrospectively, there's always something, but ultimately they did hustle and the outcome was like, we missed a scale, sales goal. And part of that was like our sale. We did hire some salespeople and that good old 60% aren't worth it. So you fire two. And then you keep one and yeah. you do that process again. And so it's like, we, if we had kept all the people, like we definitely would have crushed that sales goal. Everyone had fun us. We ended up like missioning it mar marginally. And so we reward the behavior that we failed. This is where I think semantics are important, right? Really. And it goes back to what I made said earlier. Is it a bonus or is it a profit share? Because you're absolutely right, Sam. I, you could, someone could be hustling their butt off and from no fault of their performance, the company didn't meet its goal. So don't say to them, you're not getting your bonus because... I know it's all psychological mind games and semantics, but they're going to think, what do you yeah. mean I didn't get my bonus because I worked my butt off? But if you call it profit sharing, you could say, look, this is a team pot of money. You didn't get it because the team didn't. Then I think it's better received by the team. And That's maybe doing some sort of a tier as well. So it's not an all or nothing where it's, we missed it by this much. So everybody gets nothing. Right. It's not. Oh a yeah. We, we had a tier. We just missed the bottom tier. So there's that. But I, I like the profit sharing like language. I think that's more accurate to the system anyway. But yeah, agreed. One of the things that I've done in, in it's a completely different model than what we're talking about here. I take the money up front at the beginning of the year. And so now as the manager, as you know, the person trying to make this happen, I award on individual goals so that they can increase themselves in salary by participating. You did 20 hours of overtime this month and you helped us meet a goal. Here's a way you could earn faster. So that there's an individual aspect to it. And then the, also from a team standpoint, I take my milestones. And if it's a really important revenue impacting milestone, there's a bonus. Get this done, deliver it on time, deliver it with quality. Here's your bonus. Because at the end of the day, in, in my opinion, 
sales has got to sell. We can have the absolute perfect product, but if you don't sell it, my engineers are not at fault for that. So I take that bonus and say, let's take it up front, the front side. And this is what I have to work with this year and say, okay, how do I allocate this throughout the year to say, teams, here's what I think are the strategic goals. If we hit these as a team, we won. And I believe we've given the tools to the rest of the business in order for them to win. Whether they use them or not, that becomes the vice president of sales. That becomes the, the product people. Like That becomes their job to make sure that the tools I've given them are used correctly. So I don't know. I, I completely turned that on our head by saying, hey, up front, here's how we're going to earn for the rest of the year. Yep. And, and this is what your contribution is. And we need those contributions. And it's, I don't know. There, there's that piece that I just completely turned it on its head from yeah. the beginning of the year. I think that the, the great point you're making here, Eric, is if you're going to set goals and if you're going to tie comp to those goals, those people have to be able to affect those goals. And if they can't, then what are we even doing here? And I think that's oh, a key point. Right. Or again, we're talking about two different things. You can, you can say there's a company goal, a prof, i.e. a profit sharing model versus a performance bonus, which you're absolutely right, Eric. If you're going to do performance bonuses, you have to have the money up front. Don't make it a function of the company performance. Or people are going to wonder, hey, I worked my butt off. Like you said, where's my bones? Cool. One other quick one I just want to throw out there. We're a private company. Uh, of course, there's different equity you know, stake owners and so on. But it has been really nice that our CEO, the founder, has taken into account some extenuating circumstances when granting the, say, the bonus at the end of the year. For example, there might have been a, some kind of legal issue or claim that sucked out some of our profitability. It was maybe a very narrow you know, case of why that happened. And then he made a judgment call of whether to take us to the next tier of payout by removing that out of the, the calc. So it wasn't like this mysterious thing. It was just, hey, I'm deciding to take that out so that you can get the, the mm-hmm. tier above on the payout. And I think people really appreciate that because this one very isolated thing was really hard for people. He could have just been black and white on it. Certainly everyone would have understood, but being able to make that kind of judgment call and the, yeah. the favor when you need to, not the other way around where I'm taking something away, but to give that extra when a weird case comes up, I thought has been meaningful and impactful for us. Yeah. And that's consistent with the idea of bonusing people on what they can control. They couldn't control that weird situation. That's just not fair. I love it. I love it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of CTO Studio. This is a little taste of the many conversations we have inside 7CTOs. In addition to our peer groups, 7CTOs members are also part of Slack, where ad hoc issues can be addressed by the larger collective. We also have one to two Zoom calls a week, where we go deep on specific challenges like brand new technologies, hiring strategies, people management and expanding our influence and branding as technology leaders. Also check out 7CTOs.com where we publish our list of events like upcoming retreats and colloquiums in a city near you. Applications are always open, so mention CTO Studio when you apply and you'll get a free strategy session with me. Wouldn't that be fun? See you next week.